Hello and welcome to Physician Interrupted. I am Dr. Kurnan Mannion and we're doing a series on the matrix of clinician distress. It's a five-part series and this is part four. And this part has to do with looking at the clinical syndromes, the mood syndromes of depression and anxiety. Now, previously, we have covered burnout, compassion fatigue, and moral injury. And we've also covered grief and the trauma-related syndromes of acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. And so here we are looking at where the actual clinical mood disorders fit into the overall picture of clinician distress. Let me stress here that we are not trying to do a comprehensive review of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders as they pertain to mood syndromes. Rather, we're simply trying to paint a picture of the overall landscape of distress and see when some of these other conditions that we previously covered might actually morph into clinical treatable territory. For those who are new to listening to this podcast, uh, please know that you can also go back to the Physician Interrupted site on Substack and you can then look at the article itself and more or less follow along. The podcast uh, is using the article as a script, but I also periodically veer off of that to offer some more detail. Depression, major depressive episode. Just because you're feeling depressed doesn't mean you have depression. You might say, huh? Too frequently, the term depression is used to connote any sad affect that is sustained for a period of time. So as to distinguish these from ordinary situational sadness, the everyday variety, criteria that include duration of the disabling symptoms and the actual number of symptoms must be met. The clinically significant depressive disorders are seen as having a characteristic cluster of symptoms, the number and duration of which determine whether a clinical syndrome of depressive disorder is present. And here we're focusing on major depressive disorder. Misterming all sadness as depression creates the prospect of overdiagnosis of a depressive syndrome where none actually exist. And further, it medicalizes and pathologizes normal human experience. In fact, we all have sad mood periodically, and it's appropriate. But when we misterm it, it then may lead to unnecessary treatment. Now, it turns out that there are a lot of similarities between the occupational stress syndrome of burnout and the syndrome of major depression. Thus, many confuse the two and erroneously believe that burnout is just a form of depression that happens to occur in one's work life. This is a dangerous misconception that almost always leads to inappropriate treatment and poor outcome. Now, this should be a little surprise, this overlap here. Any psychological stress whether occurring acutely uh, in an intense form, like 
high voltage surge of stress or prolonged in duration, like combat fatigue, you know, the sort of chronic high level stress that many of us are under is going to result in an array of manifestations. And these are often simply an intensification of the characteristic response we have to stress syndromes in general. Namely, whether it manifests predominantly more cognitively in our thinking apparatus, affectively in our mood apparatus, bodily in our somatic apparatus, and behaviorally in the way we carry ourselves in the world. And each of us has a characteristic stress response pattern according to certain emotional states. Now, over the course of my clinical and coaching career, I found what's helpful in distinguishing these, that is, the major depression uh, disorder and the uh, burnout syndrome, uh, uh, are the following. Uh, the syndrome of major depression has an array of symptoms, five of which need to be present for a sustained period, namely a minimum of two weeks. So you have to meet these criteria in order to fit into the diagnostic category of major depressive episode. Now, that's not saying that all depressive symptoms uh, that don't meet these criteria are not really some form of depression. It just means that for major depressive episodes, you need these. So here's a cluster of manifestations that constitute the diagnostic criteria. Now, there are two divisions here. You need sort of a, a cluster of one uh, um, that has to be present, and then you pick from an array of others that need to be present as well. It's kind of like a menu of options here. So the essential symptoms for major depressive disorder, so you need one or both of these that must be present. Two main criteria that must be present for the two-week duration are depressed mood and anhedonia. A depressed mood has to do with sadness or negative emotions. Now, translated, this means that the person's emotional state must be significantly sad and nearly unrelenting so for at least a two-week period, namely uh, almost every day and most of those days. Anhedonia, that means basically no hedonism, uh, means that you no longer feel any pleasure or interest in the things that you once enjoyed. Now, what this means is that you can't make the doldrums go away with the customary diversions that might have worked in lesser periods of low mood where you could distract yourself, such as going to a museum or out to dinner or socializing with friends. In fact, most often accompanying these two is the state of social withdrawal. At least that's been my clinical experience. You must have one or the other or both of these two main criteria uh, to have the diagnosis uh, of major depressive episode. So those are two essential um, symptoms, one of which has to be present for the diagnostic criteria. Now, you then have this menu of options of secondary symptoms. So after you consider these uh, two uh, above potential symptoms, you consider from this array of associated symptoms. 
And these include somatic symptoms related to your physical body, as well as non-somatic symptoms that are related to thought and emotion. As I said earlier, distress manifestations having to do with cognition and having to do with affect or emotion. So here are the somatic symptoms. You feel somatic symptoms of depression in your body. And in fact, apart from the above two criteria that we discussed, you can have the manifestations of depression that are predominantly somatic. And therefore, that's why it's really important to take a look at the somatic symptoms to see if they might be giving you a hint that you might have a depressive disorder. So you may actually notice that your body is different in the way it's responding than it usually is. And that may be an indication of depression. So here are the somatic or the body-related symptoms that are mentioned in DSM-5 depression criteria. First of all, sleep difficulties. Now, if you're depressed, you may have insomnia, which is difficulty falling asleep, restless sleep, or conversely, you can sleep more than usual. Now, insomnia doesn't just mean that you can't sleep at all. Rather, you may have difficulty going to sleep and you may have difficulty staying asleep. So some people can actually have the insomnia form where you actually fall off to sleep, but then you wake up some period of time later and you may or may not go back to sleep uh, or you may sleep uh, for a duration and then wake up too early. Now, some people with depression actually wake up very early and just simply can't go back to sleep. So they're really shortchanged on the duration of sleep. Despite, uh, some people actually uh, can't even uh, sleep well, despite a deficient uh, duration or quality of sleep. Uh, so, so, in other words, you're waking up even though you're sleep deprived, but you just can't get the apparatus to work. Now, in younger people with depression, it said that uh, younger people have more of a tendency to have excessive sleep. And excessive sleeping is given the term hypersomnia. The next category of somatic symptoms is the vegetative symptoms. Those are having to do with changes in appetite or weight. When you're depressed, you may find that you don't have much of an appetite for food. It's just gone. Conversely, again, just like too much sleep, you can also have excessive appetite. You are eating constantly. Now, it turns out, uh, just for your reference, that the type of depressive disorder that has to do with excessive sleep and excessive eating may have a different treatment regimen than the one that has to do with loss of sleep and loss of appetite. But what's important here is that the change in appetite is significant. And you want to make note of that, that that also could be a symptom of depression. And the same is true for weight gain or weight loss. So if you find yourself hmm, unusually gaining weight or unusually losing weight, um, then let's not rule out the possibility that depression is playing a role. Another vegetative symptom, I would actually put this in uh, in the thought category, poor concentration. So you're really unable to stay focused. And this doesn't happen because you have ADD, attention deficit disorder, or anything like that, but simply because your brain doesn't have the juice capable of focusing in the way that it usually does. So it shows up by not being able to focus on your work, on your daily chores, 
even leisure activities like watching a movie or reading a book, you just can't sustain the concentration that's needed. And let's remember that concentration uh, and attention do, in fact, require some mental energy to pull that off. They've got to basically eliminate all the other distracting stuff and focus on what's going on. And depression then takes that away. Another symptom in the uh, somatic category has to do with diminished memory. Again, I put this into the uh, thinking category. Now, memory remember is a uh, uh, remembering is a, a very complicated cognitive task uh, and we won't go into the details of it right now but it requires a series of discrete functions uh, that route the brain's circuits to retrieve information stored in temporary namely the stuff we just put there short term uh, the stuff that we put in our immediate file cabinet or longer term storage kind of cold storage in the brain and what happens is that memory packets essentially have to be unpacked before they're brought forward and made sense of. They're kind of like uh, compressed digital files, zip files, uh, for those who are familiar with computing. Fatigue is another non uh, is another uh, sympt- uh, somatic uh, symptom that we see. The uh, somatic criteria for depression then include physical fatigue, this sense of really overall feeling wiped out, overall loss of energy. And so this will show decreased activity, feeling tired, low energy, having decreased endurance where you used to be able to you know, push along pretty well, you just don't have that ability. Feeling weak, heavy, sluggish, slow, having to put in more effort, to do the same physical task are frequently uh, feeling very sleepy. Now, keep in mind that in burnout, just so that we can reference this, uh, burnout has a fatigue uh, symptom and it shows up in similar ways. And so this is one of the crossover symptom categories between depression and burnout. Another of the somatic symptoms is, is a rather uh, um, unusual term, psychomotor agitation or psychomotor retardation. And basically what this means is that there's an overall slowing down or even speeding up of the whole apparatus, your physical and your emotional reactions. It's kind of like uh, somebody decided to slow the gears up in the clock or speed the gears up. And so overall, uh, you'll see this kind of a general uh, effect on the psychic and the body's motor system. So psychomotor retardation looks a lot like low thyroid, if you've ever seen somebody with low thyroid or maybe low blood sugar. Uh, and you'll see that you're thinking and you're moving sluggishly. Now, on the other hand, you can have a situation of psychomotor agitation where thoughts are kind of speeded up, uh, but not necessarily in a good way. And your body is speeded up as well, but also not in an energized way, but more of a restless, anxious, irritable, jerky, tense kind of a way. And so you can have racing thoughts. You can be unable to sit still, unable to quieten the mind. So that's what's called psychomotor agitation. Now, those are all the somatic symptoms. Let's go into the non-somatic category. These non-somatic symptoms include emotional states and also thought states. Now here they divide it into the content of thoughts. 
But as I said earlier, I just kind of put my category of thinking into the thinking category and everything to do with the thinking function. But nevertheless, let's take a look at this categorization here of non-somatic symptoms. Depressed mood. Okay, now, as we said, depressed mood is about emotion. It's about feeling sad or low. Anhedonia. No pleasure. No hedonism. Uh, So anhedonia is that experience of losing the inability to feel enjoyment or interest in something. So when somebody's depressed, they really do have a hard time mobilizing uh, that uh, interest, uh, and they really do have a hard time experiencing pleasure. So as we noted before, uh, one of these two, depression or anhedonia, needs to be present to make the diagnosis of major depressive episode. Now, also under the non-somatic symptoms, we have feelings of worthlessness or guilt. And this is really essentially the same as low self-esteem, in which you feel there's no worth or value in yourself as a person. And you can even have unwarranted feelings of guilt that you've done something wrong or shame that you've failed. And these are very powerful. And these can significantly contribute to a sense of suicidal thought. Now, the next category uh, under the non-somatic symptoms does, in fact, have to do with the thinking content, and that is more thoughts of death and dying and thoughts of suicide. Now, this is where a person will find themselves uh, having more morbid thoughts about the death process, about ending life, about bleakness. And this is where people find themselves thinking about death, about taking their own life, dwelling on others who have taken their own lives or whom they've lost. And you might find yourself thinking about how you might do it and how others would feel. Now, that doesn't mean that you're actively planning it, which is another category of suicidal thought. But what's to note here is that you're having the thoughts, okay, and that the presence of those thoughts is indicative that you probably have a depression that is going on and that really needs to be treated. And when you get to this level of depression, a major depressive episode, most of the talk therapies just simply don't work as effectively as medication. Now, sometimes we won't go into a treatment protocol here, but sometimes it can be so severe that you really do need multiple antidepressants and you might need electroshock therapy. I know that sounds really quite hideous, Bottom line here is it can be a life-saving remedy. And there are other newer modalities to treat um, uh, deep depression uh, as well. But uh, one, of the, uh, one of the biggest challenges when somebody's experiencing suicidal thinking is that when you combine the suicidal thought with the other symptoms, so for example, the low self-esteem, and they also the loss of pleasure and the inability to sleep and the loss of appetite and uh, bodily aches and pains. Uh, and, and, you know, before you know it, uh, you find yourself in a really, really dark place. And when you're in that dark place, because of the inability to really think crisply in the way that you're used to, you can't think your way out. You can't see your way out. And so, therefore, everything starts closing in on you. 
So when you're in pain and you're feeling like there's no hope, and I feel like that is one of the hallmark warning signs for me as a clinician, when you feel there's no hope, then what happens is that the disturbed logic of suicide, okay, and I say disturbed logic because what's happening in that process is that it really does seem rational to a person who is in that state of mind. The disturbed logic of suicide becomes more compelling. It's like, oh, well, okay, it looks like this is all that's in my options. And so we have a person who's really at high risk. And this is why it's vital for those who pick up on suicidal thought, those who are working with clinicians, clinicians who are themselves distressed, uh, coaches who are working with uh, distressed clinicians, therapists who are working with distressed clinicians, they need to get guidance immediately on what is the most effective way to deal with somebody. What is the degree of care? What's the degree of intervention that's needed there? Because as we know, there's not a lot of second guessing here with regard to how you're going to um, recover from suicide. Uh, suicide's a once and final act. Now, conceptually, the syndrome of depression is not related to external situational causality. Okay, conceptually speaking, um, it's now been uh, examined that let's just take a look at depression for the symptomatology that it presents independent of any external causality. So that's not to say, however, that external causality, namely a truckload of stress from all kinds of sources, can't contribute to the development of a depressed syndrome. That's simply saying that when we are evaluating major depressive episode, we need to consider that it is an entity unto itself and we don't have to find the cause for it. This is a very important point because people will find themselves really looking for a specific cause. It doesn't matter. You can let go of that. Right now, depression uh, in a major depressive episode manifestation simply is the syndrome that consists of these symptoms, depressed mood and or loss of pleasure and any of these others, uh, an array of five of those. And what you've got here is a major depressive episode, and it needs to be considered very seriously. Now, when I am thinking about differentiating uh, major depression from burnout, here's some of the things that I found as a psychiatrist, clinician, and as a coach, and by the way, as someone who went through both depression and burnout, and I didn't even recognize it myself at the time, but I was pretty pretty uh, uh, impaired by both, let's put it that way. Now, if the syndrome began in the context of one's work life, okay, so everything else in their lives apart from their work life is on uh, okay mode, uh, and you're also in a people work, high valence outcomes line of work. So in other words, uh, uh, you're not only doing people work, but the work you do with people has a very high importance and there are life and death outcomes. So that applies to everybody in healthcare, right? Uh, and especially if you can more or less pin your depressed mood, which we call dysphoria, uh, uh, when you can pin that on your work life here, then it's pretty likely situationally induced and we might be more inclined to see that as burnout syndrome. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you might also have some other major symptoms of depression. We'll come back to that in a moment. If you take a break from work, you get some rest, you're able to feel better. You're able to, uh, you know, catch your breath, if you will, uh, after a week or two of vacation. And you're able to enjoy vacations. You enjoy the company you're with. It's more likely to be work-related and, again, thus burnout. And a major depressive episode, remember that symptom of anhedonia? Remember that symptom of feeling uh, pervasively depressed? The mood and the loss of pleasure remain mostly unchanged by environmental intervention. So uh, you, you're not going to find a lot of relief from that when you take those activities. And so those are really hinge points for me in helping to sort it out. Now, that's not to say, as I said, that external events don't contribute to the development of depression. They certainly can. Burnout itself can morph into depression, as can intense grief. Rather, you know, as I said before, we remove the defined causality when we're considering major depression. It can be present, and we just don't have to find the cause for it. Just go on the basis of what the symptom profile shows and whether it meets those time criteria, and you're sure, more certain, to be able to distinguish it. Now, can burnout lead to depression? Most definitely, especially as the burnout syndrome progressively depletes one's coping capacity, you know, our internal antidepressant hormones, if you will. And there really are such things uh, you may not be aware. It's a wonderful book by Herb Benson uh, that has to do with the relaxation response. And that is his breakthrough understanding that there's actually an antidote to the stress response. And that is really probably why uh, uh, meditation and mindfulness and yoga and these other activities are actually antidepressant. Uh, they really are anti-stress. Uh, and that's why they work so effectively in the occupational stress syndrome of burnout. Now, uh, you, can, you can have um, both, uh, both depression and burnout simultaneously. So let's say you had a pre-existing uh, history of depression and you've got depression simmering in the background and you're also getting beaten up at work and, and work is just basically knocking you down. You can have both. So treating the burnout component of that is not going to take away the depression component and treating the depression component of that is not going to take away the burnout drivers. So it's important to understand that when you have both, you've got to tease them apart and it really does take some practice at it. It takes some teasing these apart slowly. So, you know, again, when you miss the depression component in the combined syndrome, you're not going to see resolution of burnout. And not only that, the presence of burnout makes working with depression very difficult. And the presence of depression makes trying to resolve burnout more challenging. So no matter how much Prozac you might administer, right, no matter how much anti-anxiety medication you might administer, it's not going to take away the oppressive workload or the hostile work culture or the malpractice stress or working with a difficult patient population. Those are still going to stay in place. And you've got to figure out some strategies that are going to help work with those so that you can navigate your way through the burnout component of the depression. 
So that's the big picture with regard to depression. So let's take a deep breath or two here, and we're going to dive now into anxiety. Okay, so I took a deep breath here, and one of the great things about stress management is the simple act of taking a deep breath in and exhaling and doing that three, four, five times so that you kind of reset the mechanism. You notice how I'm talking a little slower, lower volume. That's the beauty of the breathing exercise. It resets that frenzy. So that was depression, hopefully not depression, pressing. <laughs> and now we're covering anxiety. Now, anxiety is a mood. Anxiety is not a disorder per se. But there are disorders that predominantly manifest with the symptom of the emotional state of anxiety. So just as with depression, just because you're feeling worried, you're feeling uptight, doesn't mean you have an anxiety disorder, quote unquote disorder but you do have anxiety. And you know, in today's upside-down world, which is utterly flooded with personal and communal threats affecting our daily existence, oh my gosh, the news just seems to be so relentlessly oppressive. Some degree of anxious apprehension would certainly seem to be a part of our psychic baseline you know, the, the existential constitution of our psyche is the way we are in the world today. And in fact, I'd be inclined to argue that if you weren't feeling some level of diffuse anxiety, uh, there may be something amiss in your psychic apparatus. How's that even possible? Uh, you may have blown out your fear fuse or something. Uh, and believe it or not, by the way, when I speak about this fear module, uh, there is such a phenomenon. You can actually blow out over extraordinary prolonged stretch. You can sort of fry the circuits uh, that are contained within a structure called the amygdala. Uh, it's a, a relay circuit for orchestrating our fear response. And you just put a continuous voltage through there, energy voltage through there, psychic energy voltage, and what you end up having is just basically circuits that are, uh, uh, let's put it this way, uh, kind of crispy. So uh, let's keep in mind that uh, chronic high stress can, in fact, alter the processing of the fear response. That doesn't mean that you're now fearless. Uh, it means that uh, uh, you really fought, fried uh, your capacity to respond now, I suspect that none of us is really unfamiliar with that worried, keyed-up, preoccupied state that we refer to as anxiety. So I'll keep my comments brief here, uh, because what can happen, especially given my background in psychiatry, is that we can go into greater detail and thus turn this into a textbook of clinical diagnosis. And that's not what I'm trying to do here, and that's not what you're here for. We're just trying to understand how these two major mood categories fit in the overall picture of clinician distress. And so I don't want to try your patience, uh, so let's just kind of keep it to the bare facts here. So briefly with anxiety, 
uh, you're likely to manifest um, multiple of a set of characteristic manifestations that go along with what's been now described as an anxiety cluster of symptoms. And as we saw with depression, so you have your default uh, pattern of dealing with stress, of responding to stress. So for some, it may be more somatic bodily. So in anxiety, you may manifest more shortness of breath or increased heart rate. Uh, And for others, their manifestation in anxiety may be more cognitive. Uh, So they may be unable to focus or they may have a mental preoccupation um, such as obsessing and ruminating, getting stuck in a loop of thinking about something. And yet for others, uh, their anxiety may manifest more behaviorally. Namely, they're, they're on edge. They've got an interpersonal irritability. Uh, they may pace a lot. Uh, so all, these are all manifestations of anxiety, but each of us has our characteristic pattern of manifesting them. And that's what can make it so confusing for people to tease apart. Now, typically, anxiety manifests uh, in the form of avoidance. So people avoid work, they avoid social situations, they avoid relationships. In other words, they're kind of removing themselves from these things, and it's due to their preoccupation, their worry, their inability to alight anywhere. They're just in a state of worry, of restlessness. With anxiety, it's difficult to stay focused, do your preoccupation with worry. And sometimes you can be stuck in a state of obsessive worry, going over and over and over things. You're just going over the same material, the same worry uh, subject there. Now, this regurgitation process is something we often see clinically, and we refer to it as rumination. How cows just kind of, you know, eat something and then put it in the rumen and then bring it back up and chew it some more. And that's what happens in anxiety. We just keep going over and over stuff. And worry really fatigues you. Uh, so as we said, you lose interest in many activities, work and leisure. And the worry just keeps you emotionally unavailable. It keeps you tied up. And you may have a disturbance in your sleep pattern. And likewise with depression, you can have too much too little overall poor quality of sleep. So again, this is one of the crossover symptoms between two categories of mood disorder that an attuned person and an astute person really needs to tap into and say, hmm, okay, what I'm seeing here is a sleep disturbance. Uh, What I'm seeing here is mental fatigue. So we need to tease apart. Is that anxiety? Is that depression? But as we'll see later, it could also be burnout. So let's just kind of run through a list here, and I'm going to really blow through these here just so that you kind of jog your memory about them. So you're thinking about, hmm, could this be anxiety? Uh, this is what we characteristically check in with. Uh, these are the uh, symptoms, the physical symptoms, restlessness, agitation or tension, nervousness, irritability, or a sense of dread, feeling panicked, frightened or in imminent danger, excessive sweating, rapid or shallow breathing, increased heart rate, that pitter-patter, 
muscle trembling or twitching, namely, you know, that tremulousness, that, uh, that sense of muscle twitching that's going on like you're ready to flee. Inability to concentrate, inability to remember. Difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, and sometimes excessive sleeping because fatigue is so worrying. I mean, worry is so fatiguing, so tiring. Fatigue, physical fatigue, as we noted above. And a host of non-specific physical discomforts, the stuff that you really wouldn't know to think about anxiety, but it's important to just be aware that anxiety can present with these upset stomach, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, diverse bodily pains and sensations. In other words, the whole body gets kind of whacked out with regard to anxiety, and it presents in a diverse number of ways. For me, I find that it is presented with some back pain, back spasm. And like depression, there is a tendency to isolate and to avoid socializing with others. So when you think about this whole array of things, I want you just uh, to look at this as a shopping list and you go, oh, bing, ding, ding, got that, that, that. I need to be considering uh, that this might be an anxiety disorder. And uh, could it be generalized anxiety disorder which you, in which you have to have a certain number of criteria? Yes, it could. And therefore, what's going to be the approach to that? Now, except in the minority people whose hardwired circuits, uh, for whatever reason, either because they've been spent or because they grew up in this way uh, or they have the genetics for this, um, they don't transmit anxiety or fear. But the vast majority of people have oh, experienced uh, anxiety or fear, which are two variants, really, of the same sort of a thing. And just think for a moment, if you would, of the times that you felt significantly worried. Now, as I said, we've all had them. So if you think about those times, just pause after this podcast and Take some time to reflect. What does it look like when you have been anxious? And then think back on these symptoms or go to the written article and look at the symptoms and see which of those have manifested in your times of worry. And that'll give you a good clue about how anxiety presents in other people. It's not the complete list because other people may have a different array of symptoms. But you'll get attuned to your own experience of anxiety. And then when those symptoms start to occur next time, you'll say, oops, guess what? I must be anxious about something. And that really is the beauty of the mood syndromes. They actually are a form of emotional intelligence. They're telling us something about what we're feeling. And they bring us to a different level of inquiry that can help guide us to resolving that. So, when you think about um, uh, the flavors of anxiety, so let's just wrap it up with this here, and that is that um, I don't want us to get bogged down in diagnostic finery here. Uh, let's just put it this way. Anxiety has two flavors, situational and ongoing. Situational is certain situations uh, can bring out an anxiety response in us, and we've got to deal with that situation and then there is the more pervasive, ongoing anxiety that we carry around with us uh, day in, day out. Uh, and uh, that then becomes more of the generalized anxiety disorder category. 
Um, one of the other categories we haven't spoken about is the panic disorder category, uh, but clearly panic disorder falls into that overall anxiety spectrum. And so I'd encourage you that if you're into learning more about mood disorders, that you start uh, delving into the variants of depression and anxiety. Now, when anxiety gets to be problematic, namely it's interfering the symptoms are interfering with your personal life or your professional life. Remember, pulling away from people, not being able to focus, you know, the sleep is really wearing you down, uh, the uh, obsessive preoccupation. In other words, you can't get the work done uh, either in your work life or in your personal life. Then it's time to get some help, and it's also time to consider whether um, anti-anxiety kinds of medications can be helpful. Now, uh, when yoga, meditation, mindfulness, and those sorts of wonderful anti-stress, anti-anxiety activities are not able to do it, this is where we need help with a medication that works at the neurotransmitter level. And yes, anxiety has a neurotransmitter basis uh, having to do with the uh, glutamate uh, system. And of course, we won't go into that here. But the bottom line here is uh, when the other things aren't working and it's clear that the anxiety is picking up or becoming problematic, um, this is the time to start taking a look at some of those other strategies. And of course, when you get control of anxiety and they help, uh, then guess what? You're able to move on with life, get your work done, and enjoy life. And uh, there's no reason to stop any of these anti-stress, uh, relaxation, mindfulness uh, activities. And hopefully those then can replace the uh, neurotransmitter medication um, uh, when the time is appropriate. Okay, so that's anxiety, that's depression, and I know that doesn't turn you into a psychiatrist, psychologist, or a psychotherapist, but it does give you the landscape of mood disorders that are most commonly seen in the overall experience of distress of our wonderful clinicians who are undergoing the bombardment of stress today. Now, upcoming, in the last of our five articles, by the way, this was meant to be one article, and it turned into five because it was simply so uh, so complicated. Um, uh, but I'm glad we've done it this way. So in the last one, the upcoming one here, we'll be wrapping up this overview of the clinician distress matrix by examining the stress syndromes resultant from malpractice litigation. So I decided to do a separate piece on malpractice litigation and the impact on clinicians and how malpractice litigation actually exerts its toxic effect of stress. We're also going to be looking at the stress that comes from the administrative medical system itself, referred to as the MRTC, the Medical Regulatory Therapeutic Complex that I and my colleagues uh, wrote a paper on, and examining how medical boards and physician health programs and uh, peer review entities and, and uh, uh, hospitals that do credentialing, all of these people exert powerful uh, control over your practice life. And if you happen to be in the minority of physicians who gets ensnared, uh, the anxiety level can go over the 
uh, over the uh, thermometer capacity here and uh, really become disabling. So we'll take a look at the role that that plays. And one more that we're going to be covering that um, I have to say uh, is just simply not examined uh, in any sufficient way elsewhere. And yet we see a couple of smatterings of people writing about aspects of it. But it, I, it may actually have to be its own separate article in the future. And that is the immense and continuous stress resultant from being discriminated against in multiple forms, racial, ethnic, gender, sexual orientation, religious orientation. And this takes place in a culture that is a very hostile culture. And unfortunately, what we see are pockets of the medical culture that are really hotbeds of hostility and bullying. And so we're going to be just talking a little bit about that in the construct of the overall clinician distress matrix. But I really do believe that these last three will eventually have their own special article and special podcast that we'll be examining. So don't miss it. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, really pretty uh, amazing. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, uh, the Substack podcast, the Substack articles, Physician Interrupted, there should be a little red button to sign up. So you might want to do that. And doing so will alert you automatically when uh, this next brilliant uh, provocative article or podcast is coming forward. And I assure you, signing up, you're not going to get a lot of trash in your inbox. So don't worry about that. I am so pleased that you've joined us and I hope you are staying well, whether you are a clinician who is grappling with the inordinate stress of being a caring healthcare provider today. And I want you to know my heart goes out to all of you as fellow colleagues. It's an honor to be in the same profession with you although I have not served on those front lines like you have. And also, it's an honor for those of you who are coaches and clinicians and patients and those who are concerned about the well-being of our extraordinary colleagues, our clinicians. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll be visiting next week. Stay well. Be well. Take care.